You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado on Cinco de Marcho. That's a new holiday I just made up. Totally arbitrary. I think we all should get the day off. Fortunately for me, given my limited uh, capacity to enforce such a notion, it is a Saturday. Therefore, most of us are off as a matter of course. But in any event, today I want to talk more about the question of liberty and defining what liberty is and is not. What does it mean that Patrick Henry once famously said, give me liberty or give me death? What really is the choice there? And what is liberty that you should be given it as opposed to having it taken away? I had a excellent time with my compatriots in the Reformed Conservative, which I am now honored to serve as a member of the governing board and the board of directors for. Also, the Ingladii Veritas crew, one and the same. There's an exactly overlapping Venn diagram of those two institutions. I find myself in the middle of that perfectly overlapping Venn diagram. But last night was our weekly meeting, and one of the questions that came up was that of how to define liberty. And at first blush, the question takes me by surprise, and it shouldn't, but it does, because I don't often stop to think about defining liberty. I know when I hear a faulty definition, an overly broad definition, and I also know that biblically speaking, as a Christian, we are told that we can be slaves to righteousness, slaves to God on the one hand, or we can be slaves to sin on the other hand. Those are your choices. There isn't really a pure liberty third option, third way. You can be a slave to God. You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. Pick one. As Bob Dylan would say, you got to serve someone. But within that choice between being a slave to God and being a slave to sin, there has to be something, one of those two options, which is a good kind of liberty, which we should desire, which we should champion, which we should promote, which we should defend. Otherwise, it doesn't make a lot of sense that Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. They answered him, 
verse 33. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave, verse 35, does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Verse 36, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And of course, they continue on from there, and there is a bit of a sharp exchange in which Jesus tells them, you are of your father, the devil, (laughs) which is not a particularly nice thing to say, unless you're Jesus or you're following Jesus and the shoe fits. It's not maybe something you're going to hear on Caleb. It's not exactly positive, encouraging. In fact, it's downright discouraging. Nothing will ruin your day like the son of the Most High God telling you, your father is Satan. But focusing in on what Jesus says about freedom, I know that, and I think of that, and I know that there has to be a definition of liberty which is in alignment with what Jesus is saying is a good thing here. And we have to know that that definition of liberty includes a positive element and also a negative element. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Abiding makes me think of the big Lebowski. Well, take care, man. Got to get back. Sure. Take it easy, dude. Oh, yeah. I know that you will. Yeah, well, the dude abides. (laughs) The dude abides. What does that mean, though? Right? What does it mean that the dude abides? Or what does it mean when Jesus says we should abide in him? I don't think it necessarily means one and the same thing, by the way. But the dictionary definition is to bear patiently, to endure without yielding, to wait for, to accept without objection, to remain stable or fixed in a state to continue in a place, to conform to, to accept without objection. So if that's what means this word abide, when Jesus says, if you abide in my word, that means we don't kick against what Jesus says. I think we do more than tolerate it. We embrace it. We relent to it. We give way to it. We submit to it. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So there's a sense in which we're limited. We're limited to the truth. And yet, the truth is a very big, comprehensive subject. 
So who could object to being limited to the truth? No one who wants to live, no one who wants true freedom, true liberty. So that means that in order to be free, in order to have liberty, I must also have truth to take what Jesus says here and run with it. He contrasts when they act confused. Truly, truly. Emphasis through repetition. I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So then we know that liberty is not slavery, and that makes sense by every definition. Only what you're not a slave to if you have true liberty changes, depending on who you ask to define liberty. Liberals, so-called, progressives, so-called, would say that we need to be unconstrained and free from the slavery to institutions, to traditions, to norms, to societal, social constructs. But the Christian would say, we need to be free from sin. We need to be free from sin and for something else. What is the point of liberty? To obey the will of our Father. Because again, as Bob Dylan says, you got to serve someone. So there is an inseparable link between liberty and duty. You can't just become some detached, disconnected, nebulous entity. Not if you want to be free in deed. If you want to be free in this reality, which exists on God's terms, which God created and rules and reigns over and will forevermore, it'll be on his terms. So then, if you want to be free, you should know what his terms are. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Jesus says that like it's a really good thing. It's a good thing that you would desire. It's a good thing you would want. And notice, too, those who are of their father, the devil here in this passage, don't object to freedom. They don't complain that, now freedom is this awful, ugly, horrible thing, rotten. Why would we want that? No, 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 no. We don't want freedom. They don't say that. They act confused. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? That's when he explains that slavery to sin is slavery and not freedom. So then we know that liberty, which is libertine, which throws off all constraints, all notions of morality, of duty, of obligation, of righteousness and wickedness, is not actually liberty. It's not actually freedom. You say, give me liberty, give me death, one or the other, take your pick. That's true. If you define it on these terms, giving you death is actually giving you this perverse, misdiagnosed type of liberty. Poorly defined liberty might leave this nebulous. So let's take a look at the Wikipedia entry. There's a lot 
there. And it's interesting to me that it is broken down in section four, ideologies, between liberalism, libertarianism, republican liberty, socialism, which has a subcategory of Marxism, and anarchism. That suits me just fine to stick to those categories. Marcus Aurelius wrote, A polity in which there is the same law for all, a polity administered with regard to equal rights and equal freedom of speech and the idea of a kingly government which respects most of all the freedom of the governed. Hobbes wrote, A free man is he that in those things which by his strength and wit he is able to do, is not hindered to do, what he hath the will to do. Now I will note that is overly broad. That is not sufficient. You're not defining liberty sufficiently there in that quote. John Locke has a lengthier quote. He writes, In the state of nature, liberty consists of being free from any superior power on earth. People are not under the will or law-making authority of others, but have only the law of nature for their rule. In political society, liberty consists of being under no other law-making power except that established by consent in the commonwealth. People are free from the dominion of any will or legal restraint apart from that enacted by their own constituted law-making power according to the trust put in it. Thus, freedom is not, as Sir Robert Filber defines it, a liberty for everyone to do what he likes, to live as he pleases, and not to be tied by any laws. Freedom is constrained by laws in both the state of nature and political society. Freedom of nature is to be under no other restraint but the law of nature. Freedom of people under government is to be under no restraint apart from standing rules to live by that are common to everyone in the society and made by the lawmaking of power established in it. Persons have a right or liberty to one follow their own will in all things that the law has not prohibited and two not be subject to the inconstant uncertain unknown and arbitrary will of others. So that's a much more robust definition. Still not quite what I would mean by liberty, but there's more to work with here. There's a state of nature. There's also a state of political society. In the state of nature, you're not being literally enslaved by any stronger power. So, for instance, the Ukrainian people are being attacked by a larger neighbor to their north and east. They're fighting to maintain their independence as a people, as a country. Might makes right is the governing philosophy of Putin. And since he is threatening everyone who he perceives to be weaker than himself, he is betting on the law of nature winning him the day. 
He wants to be freer in some sense. Freedom of people under government, Locke says, is to be under no restraint apart from standing rules to live by that are common to everyone in the society and made by the lawmaking power established in it. Persons have a right or liberty to, one, follow their own will in all things that the law has not prohibited. So that is to say, if it's permitted, you should be free to do it. And someone should not forbid you from doing it if it is lawful. There shouldn't be exceptions made just for you if you have liberty. And not everything can be against the law. Otherwise, there is no liberty. This is a large part of the problem with legalism because legalism is seldom to never, in my experience and observation, content to limit itself to what God has prohibited or commanded expressly. Legalism is always looking for more restrictions, some of them by making positive commands, you must do this, well, then that means I must not do anything else. If I'm going to do that, I'm not going to be doing other things while I'm doing that thing that you're requiring me to do. That's not liberty. Two, persons have a right or liberty to not be subject to the inconstant, uncertain, unknown, and arbitrary wills of others. Now, this is, as we discussed last night with Gladii Veritas, why simultaneously you do not want to put all of the power politically in the hands of a dictator, the one strong man who makes all the decisions from the top. It's also why you don't want to put all of the power into a pure democracy where a straight vote from the mob decides what you can and cannot do from day to day, from hour to hour. If you think that a lone man can be a tyrant. Just wait until you see an angry mob. A right or liberty to not be subject to the inconstant, uncertain, unknown, and arbitrary wills of others. I have my own will. Thank you. And all things being equal, what makes someone else's will a better thing than my will? Why should I be enslaved to someone else's will against my choice? It's worth noting that although slavery was made room for in the Old Testament, stealing people, kidnapping people, was a crime which God said to punish with death. It's akin to murder. Scrolling down at Wikipedia under liberalism, I quote, according to the concise Oxford Dictionary of Politics, liberalism is the belief that it is the aim of politics to preserve individual rights and to maximize freedom of choice. But they point out that there is considerable discussion about how to achieve those goals. Every discussion of freedom depends on three key components. Who is free? What they are free to do? and what forces restrict their freedom. John Gray argues that the core belief of liberalism is toleration. Liberals allow others' freedom to do what they want in exchange for having the same freedom in return. 
This idea of freedom is personal rather than political. William Sapphire points out that liberalism is attacked by both the right and the left, by the right for defending such practices as abortion, homosexuality, and atheism, and by the left for defending free enterprise and the rights of the individual over the collective. And this is where terms like classical liberal are important to understand in this context. This is why consistently classical liberals react to leftism because it is a constraint on the liberty of the individual as they see it. This is also why classical liberalisms against conservatism because conservatism very often will say we should conserve the morality which has been handed down to us and morality is very closely related to true freedom, true liberty. We're not against liberty, but we are against immorality because immorality of these kinds destroys liberty, really truly. But classical liberals will consistently say that a woman should be free to choose to get an abortion if she thinks that's what's best. Homosexuality and transgenderism and all of the rest should be a freedom. Whether I agree with it or not, they should be free to love whom they will, to dress how they will, to do whatever they want to with their bodies, as long as it doesn't affect me as I see it. So also classical liberals, unsurprisingly, very often come to the defense of atheism because of the same mechanics which cause them to not see morality and liberty as necessary allies in a prosperous society, in a good society, in a good individual life. Libertarianism, <clears throat> according to Wikipedia, on the article for Liberty, and I quote, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, libertarians hold liberty as their primary political value. Their approach to implementing liberty involves opposing any governmental coercion aside from that which is necessary to prevent individuals from coercing each other. So, see also being able to call the police if someone is breaking into your home, threatening your life with a weapon, unless you give them your property, do something for them. Libertarians consistently believe in being able to call the police and the police showing up and using deadly force if necessary to stop that. But again, the chief ultimate good is liberty which we'll get into some more of why that can be a dangerous, out-of-order prospect. But continuing on for the time being. Libertarianism is guided by the principle commonly known as the non-aggression principle, NAP. The non-aggression principle asserts that aggression against an individual or an individual's property is always an immoral violation of one's life, liberty, and property rights. Utilizing deceit instead of consent to achieve ends is also a violation of the non-aggression principle. 
Therefore, under the framework of the non-aggression principle, rape, murder, deception, involuntary taxation, government regulation, and other behaviors that initiate aggression against otherwise peaceful individuals are considered violations of this principle. This principle is most commonly adhered to by libertarians. A common elevator pitch for this principle is good ideas don't require force. Now here, again, I will break with libertarians, as I often do, though I find them to be much more agreeable than liberals. Good ideas do require force. Good ideas do require force. Take, for instance, World War II. Libertarians are very fond of finding a way to make every military intervention by America in our context somehow our fault for having been necessary in the first place. If our foreign policy had been such and such, then we wouldn't have had Japan attacking us at Pearl Harbor. We wouldn't have had Germany trying to blitzkrieg all of Europe. Everything could have been solved through the non-aggression principle, supposedly, depending on who you ask. Not all libertarians are this way, but too many are. And if you aren't careful, if you don't watch your step, you can be quickly contradicting yourself. If someone breaks into my house, it's a good idea for them to not hold a gun to my head unless I hand over my wallet or let them take the TV off the wall or let them hurt my family. It's a good idea for them to not do that. And yet, in order to make that good idea translate into reality, i.e. them not actually doing that and getting away with it, I will use deadly force. And if I don't have enough deadly force of my own, I will ask others to lend theirs and add theirs to mine until the threat is neutralized. So also, as I said before, we have to be thinking, if we're Christians, we have to be thinking broadly enough about what violates liberty and life and property rights. It's interesting to me that libertarians very often key in on involuntary taxation. Taxation is theft is the common phrase. That they're very clear on. They see that clearly. And yet too often libertarians don't see other moral issues as being theft of a kind or rape of a kind or murder of a kind. We're killing a good thing that God made and we're making ourselves and others slaves to sin, which is the opposite of free indeed, like Jesus is talking about in John chapter 8. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed, he says. Which is to say, if we want liberty, and we're Christians, we have to look very closely at what freedom is and is not, according to God. It is a good thing. It's a very, very good thing. But it has to be understood in context. And if it's not understood in context, well then, 
it might just not be actual freedom. Again, not everything that calls itself freedom is actually freedom. But let's continue on. Republican liberty is the next section here. And I quote, According to Republican theorists of freedom, like the historian Quentin Skinner or the philosopher Philip Petit, one's liberty should not be viewed as the absence of interference in one's actions, but as non-domination. According to this view, which originates in the Roman Digest, to be a liber homo, a free man, means not being subject to another's arbitrary will, that is to say, dominated by another. They also cite Machiavelli, who asserted that you must be a member of a free, self-governing civil association, a republic, if you are to enjoy individual liberty. The predominance of this view of liberty among parliamentarians during the English Civil War resulted in the creation of the liberal concept of freedom as non-interference in Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. Now here, as with all political systems, your political system is only as good as the character of the people involved. I'm convinced that any form of government can be prosperous depending on the character of the person or persons making the decisions. You may have heard the quote, our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. But that's true in all places, in all times, regarding all forms. Some, however good the character of men may be on the outset, have a corrupting influence because they present a great deal of temptation. More power being placed in fewer hands with less accountability is an awfully big temptation. When a democracy realizes that it can vote itself largesse, as one of my compatriots last night paraphrased, quoted, I'm paraphrasing, he quoted, that democracy will end in insolvency and bankruptcy. The public will vote itself largesse consistently until the money is gone. Not being subject to another's arbitrary will, however, that's an important feature. That's why a republic is preferable. I found it interesting that Oz Guinness likens ancient Israel to a republic instead of calling it a theocracy. It's not a government of the priests. Yes, there are priests, but the priests are not the ones making the laws. They're not the ones arbitrarily imposing their will. God himself has given the laws, and the laws don't change. He gave it once. It wasn't arbitrary. It was as objective as can possibly be. Fixed, set. You guys pledge yourselves as one man, the whole assembly of Israel, to covenant with the Lord your God, to abide by this covenant, to keep his commands, to obey his laws. And as Guinness puts it, the ancient nation of Israel was the freest 
nation in history, certainly up to that point. Arguably not as free as America with the gospel, at least at some points in our history. Not so much right now. But it is important that we think of liberty as being freedom from another man's arbitrary will and being dominated by another man. It's one thing to be governed by proper authority. It's another thing to be dominated. And don't we know that instinctively? It's not rebellion on our part. It's not wickedness on our part to react against someone cruelly telling us what to do just for the pure pleasure of telling us what to do. There's something in us which bristles at that, which rightly so sees that as wicked. Love is not rude any more than it is easily offended. Someone just imposing their will for no good reason other than just to get that power over others is being wicked. They're being rude. Last in the organized systems of government, political organization, in this Wikipedia article on liberty, socialism. Socialists, and I quote, view freedom as a concrete situation as opposed to a purely abstract ideal. Freedom is a state of being where individuals have agency to pursue their creative interests unhindered by coercive social relationships, specifically those they are forced to engage in as a requisite for survival under a given social system. Freedom thus requires both the material economic conditions that make freedom possible alongside social relationships and institutions conducive to freedom. The socialist conception of freedom is closely related to the socialist view of creativity and individuality. Influenced by Karl Marx's concept of alienated labor, socialists understand freedom to be the ability for an individual to engage in creative work in the absence of alienation, where alienated labor refers to work people are forced to perform and unalienated work refers to individuals pursuing their own creative interests. Down below, Marxism explained more fully. And I quote, For Karl Marx, meaningful freedom is only attainable in a communist society characterized by superabundance and free access. Such a social arrangement would eliminate the need for alienated labor and enable individuals to pursue their own creative interests, leaving them to develop and maximize their full potentialities. This goes alongside Marx's emphasis on the ability of socialism and communism progressively reducing the average length of the workday to expand the realm of freedom or discretionary free time for each person. Marx's notion of communist society and human freedom is thus radically individualistic. Mm. Is it though? There's a lot of lies and deceit inherent to the socialist view of liberty, the Marxist view of liberty. There's a lot of make-believe and pretend. There's a lot of self-deception and a lot of deception of others to get power. Promising freedom like sin does, when in the end, the person giving their power, giving their agency to those promising liberty will find themselves in the end a slave. It's a lot of gobbledygook 
It's of its father, the devil. So what is liberty then? As I was trying to think to myself of how I define liberty, I thought of 1984. There's a quote, a famous quote, by Winston. Freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four. Two plus two equals four. But how do we know that two plus two equals four in all of these sundry, various miscellaneous ways? Well, again, go back to John chapter eight. Verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Substitute here the truth for two plus two equals four. That's what two plus two equals four means. It's just a stand in for truth. Made mathematical, so maybe we understand more readily its meaning and don't roll our eyes. If you abide in my word, Jesus says, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Otherwise, you're a slave to sin. You're not free. Sure, you may be in the house right now, but the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. By extension, those who abide in the son remain forever. So you might have an appearance of freedom for a time, you might look like you're living your best life now for a time. At a certain point, you reap the whirlwind. At a certain point, God will not be mocked catches up with you. A man will reap what he sows. But what does Jesus say? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's the kind of liberty we should want. And I'm not saying... You focus exclusively on trying to bring spiritual revival first, and then only after you have that spiritual revival do you get engaged politically. What I'm saying is, this is what informs our political engagement. We have a vote. We have a voice. We need to use it. We have a responsibility to use it. With great power comes great responsibility. However much power we have, we have that much responsibility we need to be faithful with it and encourage others likewise. Freedom is a good thing, according to God. Freedom is not a selfish thing. When God defines freedom in Christ, freedom is a really, really good thing. In fact, it's a necessary thing. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Freedom in Christ is a very good thing. And we should not suggest otherwise, much less outright oppose freedom on principle. But we should distinguish between genuine freedom, real freedom, freedom indeed, and the mirage that is freedom to sin, which is no freedom at all. It's slavery to sin. We should want men to be free. We should want to be free. I think this is also what's at the core of Christian civil disobedience. 
that we would say we must obey God rather than men. When God explicitly tells us to do a thing and our government tells us to sin by not doing that thing, we must obey God rather than men. When God tells us to not do a thing and our government tries to force us to sin on pain of death or fines or imprisonment, exile, we say we must obey God rather than men. That's where the tradition of Christian liberty is restorative. That's where it starts to make sense in a deep and abiding way. The dude abides that Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. That's what it means when Jesus says that we are a city on a hill. But I'm going to leave it there. It's a Saturday morning, but I am working. I'm going to get to work. Let me know what you think. Do I have the right of it? Is freedom so defined, something we should desire earnestly, argue for, maintain, defend, promote? I'd love to hear your answer. But for now, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time. God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.